Well, good morning again. Um, wasn't that music wonderful today? Great. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Wayne, as well, for all the hard work you put into that. Amber, for the work you put into with the kids, as well as Dee Dee. Thank you all so much for, for all that you guys put in, all the hard work and effort you guys put into making this a wonderful service. Um, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> We've already heard the first 17 verses through song from through the song from Andrew Peterson. Um, as we come to this passage, we're asking the question: What is the reason for the season? Now, being at church, that might sound like a weird question to ask. Like, of course, we know the reason for the season. Uh, today, I'm not interested in debates about the phrase "Merry Christmas" or about divisions between secular and sacred celebrations or even to address or discuss the origins or purposes of traditions like Christmas trees, presents, Santa Claus, stockings, or any number of themes in, you might find in Christmas movies. Today what we want to do is examine what it is that Christians are actually celebrating. The answer may seem obvious. We celebrate the birth of Jesus. The answer that uh, may often be lost, though, is why did Jesus come to earth? What is the reason that the Son of God took on humanity? While we sometimes focus on Christmas as a celebration of the birth of, of Christ and all the hope and the joy that that, the, that that birth brings, Matthew does not ignore the other questions in his narrative. Today we will examine this account as we learn more about the importance of this particular holiday and of all that goes on, uh, all that's going on in the Christmas story. So again, we're going to be in Matthew chapter one. Uh, first, what I want to see as we as we as we move into this Christmas narrative, there is joy and celebration and adoration, worship that takes place in the first portion of these chapters, and and this is usually what gets focused on at Christmas time. So let's walk through this. Beginning in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1, says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So right here we have what traditionally is associated with the passages we've already read in Luke. Is this, is if you remember earlier in the Gospel of Luke, that, that this angel appears to Mary to let her know that she's going to have a son, and Mary then goes and visits her cousin, Elizabeth, to tell her about it. That's when John the Baptist we see is leaping in the womb uh, before, you know, he's not even born yet, and he's already responding to, uh, to, the, to the Son of God being in his presence. 
And here we have the other side of the story where the angel deals directly with Joseph. So what's going on here? Why? What's, what are these details trying to explain to us? We see in the beginning that, um, that the mother of Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. That is very similar to our concept of engagement. Although in, in the Roman world at this time, to be betrothed was a legal agreement. Right? If I'm engaged, if when me and Charity were engaged, there was no legal obligation for us to get married. We weren't considered married until the actual celebration, until the actual ceremony. Now, in this day and age, to be engaged was legally to be already bound to that person, to be legally married to that person. Although the celebration has not taken place, the ceremony has not taken place, none of the benefits of marriage have taken place, this is just a preparation stage, but it was a legal, legally binding aspect of, of, the, of marriage. So they're, they're in this stage of marriage, so you can kind of sense what might be, what there might, why there might be some frustration with what takes place. She was betrothed to Joseph, and before they had came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, does Joseph have any clue that the Holy Spirit is the one who has conceived this child within her? No. So when he finds that his wife-to-be is pregnant, he responds just like we would, right? Uh, we're going to have to call this wedding off, right? This probably isn't going to work out, right? So he, he suspects the worst, and he, he, he decides that he's going to end the marriage. Look at this in verse 19. It says, And for her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. In this day and age, when that, when that divorce, when that legally, legal separation of the engagement period took place, it was, very, it was often common for the husband, uh, if that was the case, if the wife was the one who would, or the, the, the fiancé female had been the one that was uh, found to be uh, in infidelity, um, then the husband-to-be the, the husband would, uh, would make a big public spectacle about it, right? Isn't that our nature, right? We often want to make a big deal out of it. Oh yeah, like let's let's put that person to shame. Let's really show them who's boss, and we'll show how how stupid and mean and evil they are, right? We see that in movies all the time. We see that in our culture all the time. Um, and here, Joseph, though, because he is a good guy, he is a he's a just man. In other words, he he he's respectful to her in this particular sense. Instead of deciding to make a big deal out of it and to put her to shame, he decides he's going to go through this legal separation very quietly. He wants to be very respectful to her, doesn't want to ruin her reputation, and he decides he wants to go about this quietly. But as he considered these things, so he's, he's contemplating what he's going to do. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now, again, it's strange enough that this person who has not been married before, who has never been with a man, has, is now pregnant. It's, the, the scenario itself is strange. What's even more interesting about this is that this was predicted over 700 years earlier. 
700 years before this ever happened, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 prophesied this, and Matthew quotes it here in verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. A couple of interesting things about that particular prophecy. First of all, this prophecy is, is, is a sign that was given to King Ahaz. Um, and God says, here's this sign for you. A virgin is going to conceive and bear a son. That would be a pretty strange thing, a pretty strange sign. Like that might, that might stick out. If that ever happened, we'd, we'd know about it, right? That wouldn't be just normal everyday circumstances. And further, this, this child is going to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Not some distant idea of God being completely separated from us, having nothing to do with us, but God with us. In John chapter 1, this same concept is explained. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, or more, more literally, he tabernacled among us. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, takes on humanity and lives as a human being. He is fully divine, taking on humanity. And this is what's going on just in this one verse out of Isaiah chapter 7. And this angel tells Joseph about this and reminds him of this passage, reminds him of this prophecy. And when, Jesus, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Called his name Jesus. So there we go. We, we see this, this great annunciation. We see this joy and this celebration, the coming of the Messiah. He's here. Now let's see how much further this celebration takes place. Continuing on in chapter 2, we see more celebration, more worship taking place here in the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 2, now, now we'll, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but this is probably a couple years later. Now it happens right after Matthew chapter 1 and verse 25. However, this actually probably takes place, this event takes place probably some years later. Um, and we'll explain why we know that and why we, why we believe that. Um, so starting chapter 2, it says, Now Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, Wise men, or the term is also magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. So let's pause there for a second. What in the world is happening? What's going on? So we're already going to explain. This is from a couple years later. Now, uh, what's going on here is, it says these wise men came from the east. Now, we don't know exactly where they came from. We're not sure 100%. However, there are a couple of interesting theories. Uh, my favorite is that, he is that they're most likely from the ancient city of Babylon, which is pretty much directly east uh, from where they are. It is east, uh, Babylon and Persia, Nat, uh, um, um, can't remember any other cities off the top of my head. Sorry. Um, in Babylon in the east. And, and uh, so what do we know about magi? What do we, does scripture talk about wise men? Does scripture talk about these magi and what they might have done? Well, in fact, scripture does talk about the magi. 
In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 48, we learn a lot about some of these guys. Well, in Daniel chapter, in the book of Daniel in general, we learn a lot about the wise men and what their job was. In particular, we find out something about Daniel in Daniel chapter 2. In verse 48, it says this, Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole, whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So who was Daniel in charge of? The Magi, the wise men. Huh, well, that's interesting. Now again, this actually, what actually takes place in Matthew is probably some 400, 400 to 500 years later. However, Daniel, we know about what we know about Daniel from the book of Daniel is that he was a person, he was a Jewish man, from, he was from Israel, and he worshipped the Lord God, he worshipped the God of the scriptures, he knew the scriptures very well. In fact, in one point he's praying and asking, hey, Lord, um, you said that it was only going to take, it was, we would only be in captivity for a certain amount of years, and we're coming up on the end of that years. It was 80 years or something like that, um, is what the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied. And Daniel had that, and he knew that prophecy. And he, so he was aware of that these, this time was coming up. And, uh, and, and that continues on in the book of Daniel. So we know Daniel was aware of the scriptures. He, we know that he is aware of the God of the Bible. We know that he is aware of that. Now, being uh, as he is a very godly man, don't you think it's possible that as the head of these wise men, that he probably shared with them about his God. That he probably talked about it. Isn't it possible that he may have shown them the scriptures and said, hey guys, this is our scriptures. This is what God has said. This is what I believe. And isn't it possible then that some of those people came to know, came to know the God of Israel and came to believe in the God of Israel. Maybe even started a group of believers in that, in that area. Now, again, this is somewhat speculation. However, there are some things that help make this story make sense or help make this, this possibility uh, give some possible cre credibility. Why in the world would these guys follow a star? Now, we know that the, the Magi, were they studied the stars, so if they saw a new strange star, they might find that pretty, pretty interesting. However, would your, if you were studying stars and, you're, and you see a brand new star, would your first reaction be, if I follow that, it's going to take me somewhere? <laughs> no, if you study the stars, you see a new star, you might be like, oh, that's interesting. Let me write that down in my journal and continue on with life. Right? You probably wouldn't go and say, I need to follow that to wherever it goes. <laughs> what do they do? They follow it. Why would they do that? Why on earth would they think that following some star is going to take them to a king that they need to worship as the savior? Why would that make any sense? Turn to Numbers chapter 24, if you can. In Numbers chapter 24, we see a prophecy by a guy named Balaam. Uh, Balaam was sent several times by an evil king to prophesy against the nation of Israel. And every time he tried to prophesy against the nation of Israel, he opened his mouth and only blessing came out. It's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating what happens in the story with Balaam. Well, in his last, in his last prophecy, the last thing he says when he tries to speak against Israel and it comes out as a blessing, this is one of the things that he says. And in, in Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17, this is part of what Balaam says here. He says, I see him now. I see him. 
but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star came out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Scepters are held by what? Kings, right? It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So here we have in Numbers chapter 24, a prophecy about a star that will, that will point out and show where a king in Israel is going to be born. Well, that's pretty interesting. So if these guys had come down from Daniel, Daniel surely had told these, this group of people about, Dan, about Numbers chapter 24 and possibly they, this, this uh, interpretation had passed down and passed down. And here these guys are, they're like, we know that when they see the star, that's, that the Savior's gonna be born. So they're watching the sky, looking for these stars. All of a sudden they see one, they say, there it is, it's time to go. Right? Doesn't that make a little more sense? Hey guys, it's time to go. We're ready to go. Now, why do we think it was about two years later? It would have taken approximately a year and a half to two years to walk from Babylon to Jerusalem. So if they saw the star at the birth of Jesus, then it would have taken them that long to get there. They couldn't go straight because that was a desert, so they had to follow the river and take, get, take this big curve through the Fertile Crescent area, and they would make their way to, uh, to, uh, to Jerusalem to uh, find this Savior that they're waiting for, that they've been expecting. So then further, we can kind of understand that they had this idea in mind, that they knew that they were looking for the Messiah. It says here... Uh, in uh, beginning of verse 3 then, um, or uh, back to verse 2, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Where the Christ was to be born. Not just some king, but this is the Christ. In other words, in, in, in Hebrew, this is the word Messiah. They knew exactly who they were looking for. They were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for the Christ. Not just some king. They knew exactly who they were searching for, and that's how Herod knew to ask about the Christ. So then his wise men, his chief priests, and scribes, their religious leaders of the day, in verse 5, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And they quote out of Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, and they say, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall, rule, shall come a ruler. Huh. That sounds similar to some things we learned in Numbers chapter 24, right? That a scepter will rise. For you, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. I encourage you to go back this afternoon. Read Micah chapter 5. Just read the whole chapter. It is fascinating how much prophecy is packed into there. So Matthew, in referring to this one particular verse in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, really kind of draws you to the whole passage. And there's, there's some fascinating aspects that you'll see all these parallels with the birth of Christ. It's a wonderful passage. So they say, these, these religious leaders, they say, yeah, we know exactly where the Messiah is supposed to be born, in Bethlehem, because that's what Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 says, right? So they tell, they tell the wise men, that's where you need to go. You need to go to Bethlehem to find him. 
Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, Herod here is not quite honest. We'll see this in the next section of this uh, chapter. Herod's motivation in wanting to know where, if they, when they find the baby, they want, he wants to kill this child. Why? Why would he want to kill a baby? Why would anybody want to kill a baby? I'm an eight-month-old. I don't want to kill him, right? I hope none of you guys want to kill him, because otherwise we'll have words. <laughs> But why would he have this desire to kill a child? Now, again, think of this. In, in the ancient world, being king was not necessarily a secure place to be. Right? People all the time were trying to take your place. They were trying to kick you out, trying to kill you. So he finds out there's somebody who can possibly overtake his reign. And he says, I've got to take care of this problem before it gets out of hand. So out of his own selfish motivation, out of his desire to keep power, he wants to know when they find the child. And we'll see how he responds to that in a little bit here. But continuing on to something we're maybe a little bit more familiar with. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So this is where we kind of find our sweet spot, right, when it comes to Christmas. This is, what we, this is where, we, where we try to settle it. It's worshiping and adoring and joy and gifts, right? We see the wise men, they come and they worship Jesus. And that's so exciting, right? Because they should worship Jesus. He's the son of God who's come as a man. They should worship him. And so they do. They come and worship him. Now, what, are the, what about the gifts? Have you ever, have you had any, uh, uh, any frankincense lying around in your house? Anybody? Anybody have any myrrh? Right, what, what is gold and frankincense? Remember, we know what gold is, right? Gold then would have been a gift that you would give a king, right? So they are recognizing uh, from Numbers chapter 24, from Micah chapter 5, they're recognizing that he is a king, saying you are a king. Here is gold. Secondly, they give him frankincense. If you read the Old Testament law, you'll see over and over again that one of the gifts you would bring a priest, one of the things that you would bring to a priest for the offerings was frankincense. You bring frankincense to a priest. So they also know that he is a priest. And further, they would bring bring him myrrh. Now, myrrh was something that was used in burial. Right? So they not only knew that this guy was a king and that he was a priest. Right? Hebrews tells us that he is a, a high priest, um, that Jesus is a high priest, and he is uh, uh, tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. 
And then finally, they also see when giving him myrrh, they see that he is a savior, that he is the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53, that he is going to die, that he, part of being a savior is that he would have to die. This idea of Jesus being a king and a priest and a savior, this is, this is all throughout Scripture. Him being a king and a priest in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 18, uh, Abraham runs into a guy named Melchizedek who is a king, and he's also a high priest. This is before Moses had set up any kind of priestly system, and this king is called a, a king and a priest to the Lord God. So, in Hebrews chapter 7, we're given the exact same thing. We're, we're, talk, we're told that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who's this king priest that is the, the king priest that Abraham met with. Jesus is that kind of priest. He's a king priest, right? And throughout the book of, of, of Hebrews, we find out he's a prophet, he's a priest, and he's a king, Right? So all these ideas are all in Scripture. They're throughout Scripture. So these guys have this understanding. They know he's a king priest. They get it. They, see, they understand that the Scriptures are pointing to the Messiah. And they see that he will die. Now why, why is that important? That they, rec they recognize even that this baby, this one and a half to two year old child, is going to have to die. On well, Isaiah chapter 53 it explains this, there's this passage about the suffering servant. This, this servant of the Lord is going to give his life for the salvation of the people. And that brings us to our last section here. Matthew doesn't, it doesn't stop with the joy and the happiness. Moves and kind of takes a little bit of a dark swing. Right? Kind of takes a little bit of an odd and kind of a dark swing. But Matthew wants us to keep in mind why Christ came. Why Christ had to die. Look at verse 13 here. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. So why did Jesus have to go to Egypt, right? That might seem, okay, they're running away, trying to get out of there, right? What's the reason that God sent them to Egypt? Well, here we go right here. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, it says, This is to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. All right, so in the book of Hosea, it was prophesied that Christ, that the Son of God would come out of Egypt, would be called out of Egypt. So here God has Mary and Joseph says, you guys need to go to Egypt to get away, to hide from, hide from uh, Herod, and they go and do that. But along with doing that and saving the life of the child, they also are fulfilling Scripture. They're making it possible for this Scripture in Hosea chapter 11 to be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I've called my son. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he had saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed, sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. 
according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. See what I mean about a dark turn? It's it's very dark. Why would Matthew include such a dark story, such a dark aspect of the birth of Christ in the, in the midst of such a wonderful event, the worship from these people from two years' journey away come to worship Jesus? Wow! And then this happens. There's several reasons Stephen Presley says it this way. Matthew is not phased by such horror. <clears throat> he, he makes it a, in fact, he makes it an integral part of his birth narrative and connects it to the testimony of the angels. He cites the words of Jeremiah here. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Ramah, which was just a few miles north of Jerusalem, is traditionally associated with Israel's deportation to exile. In Jeremiah's account, Rachel, the wife of Jacob and the mother of Joseph and Benjamin, is the national representation of a mother weeping for the children who are headed into captivity. Here, in response to Herod, to Herod's, um, Herod's act, Matthew sees the fulfillment of Jeremiah as the nation weeps for her children because sin and death still reign. Here we have the birth of the king priest the one who is going to bring salvation. And right alongside that, we still see that sin and death are still reigning. This dismal picture is not, um, is not something that was unimportant to the message. The truth of the matter is, why did Christ come? Why did he become a man? Why did he... Why do we have Christmas? He came because sin and death reign. He came to conquer sin and death through his own death on a cross and then his resurrection. There's a couple other interesting things that we bring out of this passage. This this situation of Herod killing these firstborn or killing these children that are two years old and younger, it's very reminiscent of another passage in Scripture. In Exodus chapter 1 and verse 15, we find out about how Pharaoh had done the exact same thing. He said, kill all the newborn male children. It was a national policy to do so. Herod is doing exactly the same thing as the evil Pharaoh had done in Exodus chapter 1. Now again, how does Moses get out of that situation? He goes to Egypt to be taken care of by Pharaoh's daughter and avoid being killed in the middle of this situation. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 18, we've looked at this over the past few Sundays as we've been going through the Gospel of John. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, there's this wonderful prophecy. It says that a prophet like Moses will arise and you need to hear him and he will bring salvation to the people. 
So here we have Matthew brings this passage up, not just because we need to compare and make sure we remember that sin and death still reign, but further is to point out that Jesus really is the prophet like Moses. The things that happened to Moses, there are parallels in the life of Jesus. In the beginning of Exodus, an evil king tries to take out all the babies, and Moses is saved from that by going to Egypt. Jesus is try, is att- there is an attempt by an evil king to kill Jesus, and he is saved by coming and, and going to Egypt. And then, as Moses will one day bring salvation to the people of Israel, save them from bondage, Jesus would eventually save mankind from sin and death. Christ, the prophet like Moses, has come to free the people from bondage, not just the bondage of Egypt or even the bondage of Babylon, but from the bondage of sin and death. That is the reason for the season. So why did Christ come? Christ's purpose in coming to this earth, in being born in a manger, being born of a virgin, and coming to this earth is for the sole reason to die for our sins. There's a, a wonderful book. I'm going to do show and tell a little bit here. This book is called On the Incarnation by a guy named Athanasius of Alexandria. This book was written over 1,700 years ago. Right? It's a long time ago. There still weren't even thousands yet in the, in the calendar. It was 300 and something AD. It was really early in the, early in the fourth century. Not 100% sure. That we're, we're not 100% sure when this was actually written. Um, this book, I have, uh, I have no hesitation saying this is the greatest book ever written besides the Bible. I mean that 100%. Not just because I like old dead guys and reading old dead guys. I say that because this book tries to answer the question. He seeks to answer the question. He begins the book. He says, we're talking about the incarnation, about Christ becoming man, God God the Son taking on humanity. He says, we can't understand how that happened, right? We can never answer the question how. So what we're going to answer is the question, why? So what he is ultimately answering is, why Christmas? Right? Why? And he spends this entire book explaining that and goes through the entire history of the Bible. It's fascinating, showing how all of Scripture points to Christ. And all of Scripture is fulfilled in the coming of Christ. It's a wonderful exposition of Scripture. If you want to understand Scripture more deeply, read this book. If you want to understand why we even do anything we do at Christmas time, read this book. It is the single greatest book. Let me read a passage from his book here. Um, he has is, he is just finished talking about creation and the fall of mankind. And he begins to describe this. He says, but now he comes condescending towards us in his love for human beings and his manifestation. For seeing the rational race perishing and death reigning over them through corruption and seeing also the threat of, that, of the transgression giving firm hold uh, to the corruption which was upon us and that it was absurd for the law to be dissolved before being fulfilled and seeing the impropriety of what had happened, that the very things of which he himself, the creator, were disappearing and seeing the excessive wickedness of human beings, and that they gradually increased it to an intolerable pitch against themselves, and seeing the liability of all human beings to death, 
having mercy upon our race and having pity upon our weakness and condescending to our corruption and not enduring the, domination, the dominion of death, lest what had been created should perish and the works of the Father himself for human beings should be in vain. He takes for himself a body and that not, not, and that not foreign to our own. For he did not wish simply to be in a body, nor did he wish merely to appear. For if he had wished only to appear, he could have made his divine manifestation through some other better means. But he takes that which is ours, and that not simply, but from a spotless and stainless virgin, ignorant of man, pure and unmixed from intercourse with men. Although being himself powerful and the creator of the universe, he prepared for himself in the virgin the body as a temple and made it his own as an instrument, making himself known and dwelling in it. And thus, taking from ours that which is like, since all were liable to the corruption of death, delivering it over to death on behalf of all, he offered it to the Father, doing this in his love for human beings, so that, on the other hand, with all dying in him, the law concerning corruption in human beings might be undone, its power being fully expended in the lordly body and no longer having any ground against similar human beings. And on the other hand, that as human beings had turned towards the corruption, he might turn them again to incorruptibility and give them, give them life from death by making the body his own and by the grace of the resurrection, banishing death from them as straw from the fire. Essentially what he says here is Christ became man because man is the one that is in sin. How could he save man except by coming as a man? And how could he conquer death except through death and resurrection? This is what Christmas is all about. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you've never given your trust to Christ. You don't know Christ as the Savior. You may have heard of him as this great guy. You may have heard of him as this, you know, maybe some kind of prophet, maybe some kind of miracle worker, but you've never trusted in him as your Savior. This is the gospel. Christ took on humanity to save your sin, your wickedness, your evil. Christ took on humanity because of you, because of me. And he died a death that he did not deserve so that we might have life. He rose from the dead so that it was possible for us to also raise from the dead. What a wonderful truth that is. In a moment, we're going to have an invitation. If you'd like to know more about the gospel, you can either talk to me after, the, after that part of the service during the invitation or grab me after the service. I would love to tell you more about how you can know that you have life in Christ, how you can know that Christ is your Savior, that you have that gift. The only gift that really matters this Christmas season is the gift of eternal life, the gift of salvation. We invite you during this time of invitation, if you don't know Christ, that you would, uh, you would find out how you can know for sure that you uh, are a believer, that you are, are saved by, by the Lord Jesus Christ. To the rest of us in this room, maybe this is the first time you've really thought about it again, about the meaning of Christmas. Pray that during this invitation you would take the time to, to talk to the Lord again about 
but what it is that he has done to be reminded of that truth to again worship for all that, the, that, that, is, that comes together in the Christmas story. Not just because he was born, but also because he conquered sin and death. And sin and death no longer has to reign because Christ has conquered it. And one day, sin and death will no longer reign because Christ will return. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have once again to come to your house. Lord, to spend this time today talking about the gospel, talking about your incarnation. Lord, I pray that today as we celebrate with our families this holiday, Lord, as we, as we leave from this place in worship, that Lord, that we would remember all year round that you came for our sake, that you came to be our Savior. It was not a gift that we deserved, Lord. That's why we call it grace. I pray, Lord, there's, if there's anyone here who does not know you, who has not received that grace, that they would not leave this place without knowing for sure that they are one of your children. In your name, amen.